Welcome to the Hallucination Cafe. I'd like to take you on a journey to an alternative reality, a world of fiction, of horror, of science that doesn't exist. I'm your host, Shelley Ann Wooderson. Welcome to the 11th episode of the Hallucination Cafe podcast. Tonight's story is called Food Chain and it's by Richard Mueller. Please, if you like this podcast, write us a review, like, subscribe, tell all your friends about us. Without any further ado, here's the story. I had always loved the Pacific Ocean, but over the last few years, the love affair had paled and twisted. The neighborhood where I grew up, overlooking the surf, was now almost deserted. Windows were dark or broken and weeds covered most of the lawns. By the time the Pacific Coast Highway north of Malibu began to crumble due to the combined onslaughts of water and earthquake, most of my neighbors had moved out. The county had promised to upgrade a fire road east of the hill, but, as usual, nothing was done. My house was wired, tightened, and trapped, and it suited my current destitution to stay where I was, but my work often took me down to the water. Seeing it wasn't enough. I had to get in it, and that was tricky. I had to keep a really close watch on the tides and the crumbling roads, and make sure my permits were up to date. It would take just one rookie cop with a twitchy trigger finger to make my life a permanent mess. As I worked my Volvo down the crumbling access road, a county prowler was slowing to a stop on PCH opposite. The sheriff was one I did not recognize. Young, but at least he hadn't drawn his gun yet. Pulling to a stop, I lowered my window, but the sunlight on the officer's mirrored shades, his badge, and the trim on his squad car was blinding, and I had to look away. The rookie dropped his hand to the butt of his sign arm. Are you okay, sir? The sun off your, how to say it, blinded me. Would you step out of the car, sir? Sure. I got out and stood back against the door, hand on the window well, steadying myself against the blurring after image. The cop was craning his neck to see into the back seat. He had a gun in his hand. When did he do that? What's in the cooler, sir? Lunch. Bill Moss, an old harness bull, was strolling across the road from the second county car. Put your gun away, Preston. This is Mr. Robbins. He lives up there on Eddystone. How you doing, Mr. Robbins? I'm all right. I was just blinded by the reflection off his car. The rookie turned, embarrassed. Sorry, sir. That's okay. Hi, Bill. I'm good. Bill slapped the rookie on the shoulder. Mr. Robbins is the last one left up on the West Outlook. He's the only one got a car looks like that. That was a rusty 2015 Volvo convertible. Black, but with the bumpers and fenders stripped white for visibility. It rested high on extra-large tires, which allowed me to take it down the deserted beaches without getting stuck. No tow truck would come out here, and although I kept it in good repair, I knew its days were numbered. Everything's days were numbered. It was the one lesson that life had taught us all, though some, maybe most, learned it posthumously. Bill was going on to the rookie about how I collected marine specimens for the lab at the Natural History Museum, and that my lunch cooler was usually full of creepy things I'd found on the beach. I just wanted to get away and get working. Sorry, Bill, but I'm losing the tide. Can I go? Sure, Mr. Robbins. You take it easy. Be careful. As I pulled away up PCH and made the turn-off that led down to the beach, I thought about what Bill had said about the ocean. Be careful. People used to say, have fun, but that was before the ocean had become frightening. We'd abused it until it declared war on us and struck back. Now people shunned the beaches and watched the dark, rolling water for portents, and they never saw the shrouded sunset. It was just too damned bad. 
The cooler contained four inches of green nutrient solution to keep everything I found alive in good condition until I could get it back to the museum. It was sloshing in the cooler as I drove along the tide line, watching for creatures, live or dead, creatures that had gotten stranded, any abnormal bit of flotsam. Then I saw it ahead. It could have been mistaken for a large rock, but it was moving. A person? It was big enough and white, but definitely not human. Louis Flitkin was just where I expected to find him, sitting under the fly-speckled Sharknado poster in his lair, in what passed for the crumbling editorial offices of the South Malibu Advisor and Notary Public. His fan was labouring, but his phones were quiet and he was banging away on his old tattered laptop, his clothing streaked with sweat. What do you want? You owe me money, Louis, he snorted. I don't have your money, so shove off! Louis's idea of commerce left out several basic human values. I also have a story. He looked up. I got all the global warming, climate change, apocalypse stories I can use. I didn't say it was for you, although I guarantee it's one you don't have. Louis curled his lip. Meh. But want. Louis leaned back in his chair and regarded me with the loathing he reserved for those human beings who ruin his day, a list whose apex I had attained many times. He knew if he just threw me out, I might not come back, or perhaps hit him with a nuisance suit to recover my money, and he couldn't be sure that I didn't have a story. After all, I was always grubbing around on the beach. Look, Robbins, you say you have a story that doesn't have an existing niche in the ongoing destruction of this planet, something I haven't heard. You remember those giant bugs they found under the ocean? Pacific Rim was a movie. Not that, but about the same time. That summer, the robot submersible came up with one of those deep-sea trenches with the giant white bug clinging to it. So, Louis, what if those things started showing up on the surface? How giant? About a yard long? A meter? Really? Louis stopped and looked out the window, his rusty brain gears going round. The surf was lapping away the remains of the beaches, along a line of condemned houses that had once been the roofs of second-line celebrities. At high tide, the ocean filled a slimy pool in the building's parking garage and threatened PCH. A long tail of black smoke was tending out over the ocean from somewhere down the coast. Redondo Beach, maybe. It was one ten in the shade. In November. When Louis finally spoke, he sounded deeply saddened. They shut down half the New York subway system today. Just gave up on it. They said they can't keep the water out. I grew up in the Bronx. My first job was on Manhattan Island, and I rode the subway every day. That line's gone, most of it, all the underground parts. But it'll all stop soon, won't it? It'll level out, leave some land. Not like that Kevin Costner movie. He gave me a look that could only be called imploring, like I could say something that would change everything, turn back the clock and set the world right. But there were no magic answers, only what amounted to more of the usual sad questions. Some of us won't make it, I said softly. Some of us will. It was my stock answer for such questions. When he was feeling optimistic, he actually believed it. Louis shrugged. Louis, do you want the story or not? What is it? My money. He chewed his lip. He knew he was over a barrel. How much do I owe you? I squared my shoulders. 120 and I want 500 bills for the new one, plus 
byline and staff. Normally, Louis Flitkin would have hit the roof, but thinking about the end of the world had taken the steam out of him. If the story's that solid, why not take it to the Times? Because they won't think it's true, and you'll know it is. I'll know? He pondered this. Louis had dropped into the darker place of his mind, where he couldn't escape from his fears, his lingering regrets about the past, but like most people, he found some comfort in knowing the truth, as bad as it might be. On the surface, yeah. Okay, you got a deal, let's hear it. The oceans have been turning against people long before Fukushima, probably ever since people started dumping poisons into them during the Industrial Revolution. By the time Enoshiro Hondo had given the world Godzilla as a metaphor, Mercury was showing up in the Arctic ice cap. Of course, people did nothing to mitigate this fact until the appearance of a gentle-voiced Jacques Cousteau in Greenpeace and Earth Day, and by then, it was all too late. When they started building nuclear plants on the coastlines, it became a question of when, not if when the human race would pull the trigger on itself and the rest of the ecosystem. Because money and stupidity often go hand in hand. The powerful kept worrying about productivity and markets and the other nonsense, ignoring the obvious and the inevitable. Louis and I sped down the Pacific Coast Highway in my beat-up Volvo ragtop, sliding around the flooded at high tide signs and watching out for cops. Where are we going? A little marina in San Pedro. To see what? A story that no one else has. After detouring around a wreck, a fire, and a hazmat operation, we came down into San Pedro. Most of the low-lying parts were burned with sandbags and K-rails covered in gravel, but they wouldn't last much longer. Down here, the only structure guaranteed to ride out the coming deluge was the battleship Iowa. I pulled up and parked between two containers at the port of San Pedro. The asphalt was speckled with pools of water. You call this a marina? Close enough. I reached into the back seat and pulled out a plastic tarp off a large cooler. Help me with this. What's in it? Specimens. Whatever you do, don't open it. Great. We carried the cooler down to the berm, where a little portable shack with a sign that read Harbour Office 4 was stuck in between the sandbags and the containers. The shack sat on a large steel flotation donut and was tethered in case the rising water tried to take it away. Inside a radio was playing world music. Many trans stood in the doorway watching us as we set down the cooler. You brought lunch? She asked cryptically. She was a small woman, and her coverall and helmet seemed too big, but I had learned long ago not to underestimate her true stature. I motioned Louis back. As I unlatched and pulled off the cover, I held it before me to serve as a shield because the creature inside was not happy. It struck out but bounced off the top and subsided into the container which was half full of the gross green nutrient. What the hell is that? cried Louis. Then, oh, that's the bug? Yeah. The bug, as if comprehending he was under discussion, rattled around in the cooler, trying in vain to raise a leg high enough to grab the rim. It was about 30 inches long, segmented, white in colour, and possessing both gripping and scuttling legs. The mouth seemed to be a combination of a sucking tube and a cutter, like a sausage machine in reverse, and it was obvious that the green icor wasn't its first choice of food. Only a lack of leverage prevented it from climbing out of the big cooler. Minnie moved in close, pointed out salient characteristics with a steel rod, which she used to whack back any appendage that seemed too curious. Notice how thick the edges of the segments are? That's because of the deep undersea pressure, but no antenna or eye stocks. Again, the pressure. These things evolved to live right where the ROV first found them. 
the sensory apparatus is probably on the leg ends. But when it was brought to the surface, how come it didn't explode? For the same reason the ROV didn't. It's not pressure reactive, it's the Cleomid. It could probably live in space, though that's not a theory you heard from me. Louis seized on the moment. But these could be extraterrestrial. Manny blew the air out of her cheeks and shook her head. No. I'm sorry to say these developed right here on Earth in some deep seascape in a trench our machines have seldom visited, which makes physiology of this one disturbing. You're saying it's also evolving to come on land? Unless there are some strange conditions of temperature or pressure down there that I can't guess at, that would be my assumption. Are they, this thing, radioactive? Like the trilobites in Godzilla's footprints, Minnie smiled broadly. Let's find out. She ducked into her shack and returned with the Geiger counter. The bug bipped a bit and made the needle twitch, but nothing significant. Cooler than Fukushima. What do you plan to do with it? Take a bunch of pictures, pay this mook to write it up, publish it in my paper, and then deliver this thing to the Natural History Museum. He stopped looking around. What the hell happened to your radio? It was pouring out a torrent of static. It's been doing that a lot lately. Some sort of signal interference. The guys on the Iowa said it's been screwing up their video displays too. She turned and tapped on her laptop. Hmm. Computer too. Could it be from this thing, I asked, nudging the cooler with my foot. Probably. Lots of insects communicate with forms of radio waves. Better tell them at the museum when you drop it off. And don't wait too long, Mook. The story and pictures were on the net that evening, and when I went over to the office the next morning to pick up my check, I encountered a brace of GSA sedans blocking off the street. There was, also, ominously, some sort of military amphibious vehicle parked in the street across the beach. Better to brazen it out now than to run for it and get shot. I wondered how government spooks hid their eyes before sunglasses. Hat brims, probably. Can I help you, sir? I work here sometimes. I was just dropping by to pick up my check. May I see your FIC? I passed in my wallet. The spook scanned the federal identification card and then tapped his earwig. Yes, sir. He glanced up at the window of Louis Fritkin's lair. There was another spook looking down at us. Finally, the downstairs spook turned to me and said, You can go up. Louis was seated in his desk, flanked by two more spooks, the one whose eyes were visible obviously being the head spook. Mr. Robbins, the head spook said, I'm sure that you know why we're here. I confirmed that I was indeed Frank Robbins, that I had found the creature there on this spot on the map, that Louis and I had taken pictures of it, put them on the internet, and then delivered the bug to Professor Schickburn of the Museum of Natural History. Have I done anything illegal? Is that beach posted for trespassing? No. Plus, I have a literal marine scavenging permit from the town council. Scavenging? Is that a euphemism for looting? I laughed. I hardly think that the North Malibu City Council would license looters. I find, collect, and deliver marine specimens to the museum. I also write for Louis' blog and paper. See? Louis said. I told you. Yes. So, Louis went on, if you just talk to the professor. We've already taken the professor and his specimens into custody. Do you see any reason why we shouldn't offer you the same service? Louis bristled. On what charge? 
We don't even know who you are, I blurted out. Naval intelligence, NSA, men in black? But the two spooks froze, looked at each other, and we realized they must be hearing something on the airwigs. After an endless ten seconds, the head spook looked up. Fire them up, we're on our way. And with that, Louis and I found ourselves hustled into a spook prowler and on the way south. Can I ask where we're going? San Pedro. Louis and I glanced at each other. What's in San Pedro? Shut up, gentlemen. As they pulled into Gaffney and raced around the big park at the west end of the street, I was relieved to see that they weren't heading down to the docks. Minnie was not part of the objective, at least not yet. When we reached the park at the end of the point, the roads near its peace bell were crammed thick with every sort of police car, fire truck, ambulance, and even military vehicles. The area around the peace bell was swarming with suits and uniforms. We were all hustled up to a command post on the platform holding the bell. At the edge of the cliff, various high-priced politicians and cops were peering with binoculars down towards the beach below. Before I could find a pair for myself, Professor Schnickburn stepped out of the confusion and handed me a small brass tube, a collapsible telescope. Professor! Hello, Frank. Go ahead, look. Look at the chaos we started. I quickly scanned the beach. There seemed to be white specks all along the tide line, and they were moving. There must be hundreds of them. And I don't think we started it. Thousands. They seem to have decided upon our beaches to what? Mate? Feed? Lay eggs? To die, maybe, Louis said. Like salmon? Feed? What do you suppose they eat? I'm more concerned about what might eat them, Professor Shipburn muttered. Predators follow their food supply, and they've come here. Any idea what the military is planning? The usual, a violent reaction. And with that, four helicopters swept low over us, pounding the point with their jet rotor exhaust and dropping low over the ocean. As they headed out to sea, they split, two each north and south, and began to circle back. Move back from the cliff edge, came a hard edge loudspeaker command. The helicopters are starting their run. The crowd, military and civilians, started to immediately trot back towards the peace bell, while a half-dozen men clad in flame-retardant suits and carrying recording equipment passed through them, moving up to chronicle the event. As one, the crowd crouched, many in it stretching out prone on the damp grass. Some covered their ears or put their faces down to shield their eyes. Then the helicopters let go of their white phosphorus rockets and rose away from the explosions they'd set off. Shaking with a stink of chemical death in my nose, I helped the professor to his feet. In the background, the loudspeaker once again came on, but nothing came out of it except static, then commotion, as men were running towards the edge of the cliff. As we pushed our way through the crowd, suddenly silent, we could see out towards the western horizon. Under the circling helicopters were the sea. Alive with creatures rising to the surface, their reddish, segmented, armoured bodies packed together like logs in a mill pond. Centipedes, someone explained. And they were. Each perhaps thirty feet long, their legs propelling them like galleys as they stroked towards the shore, and as we watched, the first ones reached the smoking, blackened cliffs and began to climb. For a second, no one reacted. Disbelief freezing the crowd and then everyone gave way to panic. I lost track of the professor, and I hadn't seen Louis since the helicopters had plastered the cliffs. Cars and trucks tangled up on one access road, several being swept aside as a tank and some APCs moved in to respond to the threat. 
The air was filled with the rattle of chain guns and the dull boom of cannon, and then I heard my name being called. Caroming off an auto trying to head to the exit on Gaffney, I rolled across the hood of another car and stumbled to my feet still running, a head standing on the roof of a dark sedan parked behind one of the old coast artillery barracks. Minnie Tran was waving. Angling away, I broke out of the exodus and ran towards her. Minnie, when did you get here? Get in the car! I did. She swung in behind the wheel, slammed the idling car into gear, and we took off. We can't get out that way. The road to Gaffney was clogged, and for the first time I heard screams. Not going that way, Minnie growled, swinging the wheel around and shooting the car between a barracks and a parked truck. Ahead was the fence separating the park from the neighborhood. Hang on! The car burst through a fence and smashed into a backyard. Luckily, there was no pull, and the driveway was clear, as many fish towed out onto the street more helicopters roared overhead. What do you think? Can we stop them? I listened to the carnage breaking up behind us. Not today. Not now. Maybe the mountains? That bad? They were all the way to the horizon. If they pick us for a food source, I wouldn't buy any beachfront property. Speaking of which, where are we going? The mountains. Cutting our speed, Minnie snaked us through San Pedro as a stream of vehicles began to fill the streets. They were from the park. The panic hadn't yet reached town's residence. We're going up the 101. No, over the Vincent Thomas Bridge. I want to get an overhead look at the channel. There was little traffic as we climbed higher on the great arched structure, which was lucky because at the apex, Minnie pulled to a stop and put on her hazard lights. She dragged me to the rail and we looked down. Like a tidal bore, the forward edge of the centipede mass was coming up the channel at a good clip, chasing police and coast guard boats ahead of us. It was rolling up over the piers and docks and heading inland towards the stacked containers. Other cars were stopped on the bridge behind us. Many, if we don't get out of here, we'll get trapped when they overrun the approaches. We almost didn't make it. As we hit the flat between the Vincent Thomas and the bridge to Long Beach, traffic was jammed up at the light, and we could hear all kinds of combat in the distance, none of which sounded organized or likely to stop the centipede horde. Can we get through that? Watch me. We shot across oncoming traffic to the left, flew off the road and bottomed out on the flat. For a second I thought our suspension had dropped, but the big muscle car fish-toweled forward onto a paved road that led to a refinery area. Don't worry, Minnie called. I know another way out. By dusk we reached the San Fernando Valley. Most of the radio stations were still playing blank music tracks or were off-air altogether. The roads were clogged with traffic. I had a feeling that most of the drivers had no idea where they were going. We had no difficulty stocking up with food and fuel, but as we were pulling out of the gas station in Sepulveda, a long convoy of military vehicles went by heading south. Suddenly a station broke through the radio static. The U.S. military is fighting an action against a biological incursion along the coastline between Seal Beach and Malibu. It has been decided to use a nuclear weapon off the coast, and we urge everyone listening to move inland at least 10 miles. Biological incursion? Minnie asked incredulously. Well, if they said giant saltwater centipedes, people would start looking around for Orson Wells. They're telling the truth without alarming anyone more than they have to, and it won't work. If they shoot a tactical nuclear torpedo into those things, they may fry 10,000, but I think there's a whole lot more out there. And I think we'd better go. We shot up the Antelope Freeway through Mojave and stopped in Bishop for gas. Along the whole run from the ocean to the Nevada border, there were military aircraft in the sky. The government was throwing in everything. I just was sure it wouldn't be enough. 
You folks heading east? asked the attendant as he ran my card. Yeah. Well, I don't think you're going to get through. Nevada just closed the border. Can they do that? Not legally, but you know Nevada. Bunch of criminals. He handed back my card. You running from that mess at the beach? Yeah. Well, I don't think you're going any further. He motioned out the window. Two dark sedans had pulled up, blocking Minnie's car on either end. She was out of the car, talking to the three men in suits. I nodded. Caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. What seems to be the trouble, gentlemen, I said, with as much innocence as I could muster. They didn't smile. We were questioned. The fact that G had brought us down to the beach had put us on a list. The fact that we were still alive made us important, but not apparently important enough to warrant a plane ride. In two hours, we were part of a military convoy heading across the Nevada desert. They took us to Colorado, where we were questioned again and again. Since we knew no one there, and probably would never see anyone we'd known in California, we decided to stick together. So when they asked us if we were married, we said yes. They shrugged and assigned us to an apartment. Happily, Minnie and I got along well and formed a comforting relationship because the world was suddenly at war and we were part of the American phase of the war effort. By the time the bugs showed up in the Gulf, the Navy had come up with some mega depth charges to break up some of the worst concentrations, and then our forces caught a delaying action as the Death Walkers, as they were now being called, came ashore. On the eastern seaboard, there seemed to be fewer bugs, and the radio-controlled super hedgehog beach mortars kept them at bay. We'd also begun building fortified ramparts out of the Death Walker carcasses, but after two years, we'd lost the Pacific seaboard, Hawaii, Maritime Alaska, large swaths of the south and midwest as they came up the rivers, most of Puerto Rico, and at least three million people. The Air Force was wearing out their planes, the Navy had become a coastal defence force, and the Army was manning the bug fronts. With fishing and shipping destroyed and 20% of our agricultural land unusable, we were facing starvation. By then, Minnie and I had been assigned to head teams at an experimental station codenamed Pollock at Natchez. Using specialized tracking vehicles with grapness, my team hooked the death walkers and dragged them back to where Minnie's team brought them for the processing sheds. Every part of the bugs was analyzed for utility, but the main function was to strip the long belts of fatty tissues below the muscular bundles that moved the legs. These long white masses were steamed and prepared the way that factory ship used to prepare pollock into a dozen different forms, from fish sticks to chowder. We figured that as long as these damn things were eating us, the least we could do was turn the tables on the food chain and get even. The first night we tried the new bounty at the Natchez facility dining room, we were pleasantly surprised. Tastes remarkably like chicken. Chicken of the sea? We laughed and tucked into the meal. When the underfed masses got a taste of this, it was going to be a hard season for the Death Walkers. I'd like to thank Richard Mueller for letting me read that fun little story. Check out the earlier one he has on the podcast called The Lurk. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week for another story.